Yeah, this is Frank Bill, author of Donnybrook, and I'm doing a fucking awesome podcast with the guys over at Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. This episode is going to be the second part of our Sunday Salon Chicago live reading that we uh, we've, we started bringing you on our previous episode, the 150th episode. Do you know what this episode marks now? Episode 151? <laughs> it's the start of the next 150 episodes. That's true. The first. This is the... <laughs> Oh man, I I can't even. It, it took me a minute to think about what our first review, what our first episode was. Oh man, it's been so long, dude. That's crazy. I was gonna say this is the three seconds of our our next. I'm, I'm glad you said it because I was still trying to think of what. It was. <laughs> so I was sitting here very quietly, going, "I can do this. I can do this." And the funny thing is, I did a very veiled attack at our second review, the Mozart conspiracy, when we were talking about Dan Brown and our. Two episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah, 151. What better way to kick it off than uh, than a continuation of Rob Robert's month? That's right. Robert's month just chugging along. Um, in our previous episode, we gave you the first half of the Sunday Salon reading. We introduced you to Sunday Salon hosts Natalia Neville, Alexandra Sheckler, and Christine Sneed. Also, really quickly, the MC for the evening was Patrick Somerville. Then you got to hear a couple stories uh, from Sarah Gerkensmeyer and Russ Bradbird read as well. What was your joke? You said, "Oh, it's all downhill from there, man." <laughs> well, there, there was you saw Russ Bradbird's name, I think, originally before we even went to the reading, and you were joking. Well, I know initially, I know initially we had told Robert she was reading with three women. Four women, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There was some misinformation. I think it's because there's so many female hosts. We just saw those names. Yes. Um, no, it was you thought it was Ray Bradbury. You were joking. Oh yeah, it was Ray yeah, Bradbury. exactly. Yeah, so but I couldn't great. remember the the title that you were joking that he wrote. Oh, Fahrenheit 451. There you go. There it is. Yeah. It's like that's the guy who wrote Fahrenheit 451. Then Rob had to tell me that guy was dead. So yeah, um, it was not Ray Bradbury, to which I was truly disappointed. Um, but uh, Russ really brought it and and brought it up to, to, to like a high note. Yeah. And uh, we're going to go into the much more somber part of the evening uh, with uh, with uh, the second half. Um, but first, kind of co-emceeing, I guess, was Gina Frangello. Uh, a little bit about her. Gina is the author of the collection Slut Lullabies, the novels My Sister's Continent, and the upcoming A Life in Men. Gina is a longtime editor and advocate in the independent publishing community. She is the executive editor at Other Voices Books. She also edits the fiction section of the popular online literary collective, The Nervous Breakdown. Can I just tell you that I, I took all this from Amazon, but I did make it a little. Because, yes. because I love <laughs> you. I made it a little. You trimmed it down a little bit? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. All right. Did we ever talk on the podcast about how our, our history with Gina Frangello? No. no you remember no. the first time we should have met her, right? Well, no, I don't actually. Gina was at the, she was in court in Indiana the first time we went down there for the Crimes in Sunday, the Crimes in Southern Indiana, uh, book release event. 
Here's the problem with with Corey in our first trip down there. I think we were still basically um, just afraid to talk to anybody. We were very afraid to talk to people, and we didn't know anything back then. So because we were like, oh, Dan O'Shea he was there, and it was a Benjamin Whitmer. So he went there too. I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Matt Funk was there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I didn't I talk to any of those guys. Santa Claus was there. There were so many people that were there <laughs> that, like, in retrospect, we could have talked to everybody in the crowd and and, and like, you know. Instead, yeah. instead, we talked to Matthew McBride. We talked no to recollection yeah. of it. We talked to, yeah. we talked to Matthew McBride, mm-hmm. uh, David James Keaton, and Richard Thomas, and then we talked to uh, Donald Ray Pollock for like a minute. Mm-hmm. That was Don't it. forget Chris Deal, and Chris Deal, yeah, yeah. So, any rate, this time totally not the case. We talked to, we didn't really talk to anybody this time either. The problem is I'm antisocial, and I don't mean to be. Yeah, li- have- Liv's not a very social person. No, I'm not. not I know it's person. terrible. So like, yeah. Any rate, let's talk about some other people now. Yeah, yeah. So we got a couple of readers again for this episode. Um, starting off this half is Emily Rapp. I'm going to read you her bio really quick in an abbreviated and abridged bio. I cut out like two thirds of the bio with all of her awards and everything. <clears throat> but anyway, her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Salon, The Sun, The Texas Observer. Body and Soul, and many other publications. She has taught writing in the MFA program at Antioch University, Los Angeles, the Taos Writers Workshop, uh, University of California, Palm Desert, and the Gotham Writers Workshops. She is currently professor of creative writing and literature at the Santa Fe University of Art and Design in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, we're going to hear her reading an excerpt from her um, recent book from, I believe, just a, a few months ago. Um, the still point of the turning world. Yeah, funny that didn't show up in her bio, huh? Um, I thought you probably just cut it out. No, I, yeah, it wasn't like a wild cut. It wasn't actually in there. <laughs> I pulled that from her website, too. Emily, if you're listening, update your bio on your website. There we go. <laughs> and our uh, fourth and final um, Sunday Salon reader, uh, I can almost do this from memory at this point. Rob Roberge is the author of the novel's drive and more than they could chew in the short story collection, working backwards from the worst moment of my life. He is the guitarist for the seminal punk band, the urinals. He lives in the Southern California desert near Los Angeles. And oddly enough, the cost of living is missing from that bio too. And that's what we'll be reading excerpts from, or that's what we'll be hearing excerpts from this evening. We read our excerpts. That was like a month ago. I thought ago. you were ambushing me. Like suddenly we're on the spot. We have to read uh, excerpts from that book. Just to see if we can do a better job than Rob does with it. All right. I want to, before we get on to actually hearing them, I'm going to throw some under the bus here. You ready for this? I am totally ready. Paul Is Ro- it me? Yeah. No, no. Okay. Then I'm ready. It's, you're going to know exactly why in a second here. It's website guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so like, yeah. We pulled this bio from Rob Roberge's website, and like we just said, the cost of living's not in the bio. Um, guess what else website guy? I'm assuming website guy didn't put that on there yet, but uh, it's also website guy's fault that we actually showed up late to the event, the event, but thankfully the event started later than we arrived, so we, we still got the whole thing, but we are talking to Rob, and we're like, hey, your website said it was 8 o'clock, and he's like, oh, that's what the website guy put on there. Would you like me to put a name to the website guy? Is there a name for the website guy? I mean, I'm okay with just calling him website guy. I have a name. <laughs> I don't know. You know how vindictive I am. Of course yeah, I have a name. Of course. Go for it. <laughs> Patrick O'Neill. Oh, Patrick O'Neill. So Patrick yeah. O'Neill was the guy that made us late for the event. And and when Rob was like, yeah, the website, that's what the website guy put up. 
I said, is he here tonight? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to just like exact some revenge. And we didn't get there late. We got there before the start, as listeners already heard. We were yep. already we were there when it started, so everything turned out okay. But yeah, Patrick O'Neill. Just want to say his name again. Patrick O'Neill, you are on notice from oh, Booked. Um, we're going to hear something um, a little um, odd at the beginning of this uh, episode. So Gina's going to come on and, and introduce Emily and Rob. And then Emily and Rob are going to read each other's bios. The full-length bios. I just realized that we <laughs> just read the bios again um, in, in uh, what, what was a very uh, fun, um, you know, kind of way. In so, poet voice. Yes. So um, here it is. Emily Rapp followed by Rob Robert, starting with Gina Frangello. So, um, thanks you guys for being here again. I really appreciate it. I hope you had a nice commission. And um, so we're just going to the second part. Um, so Gina, if you want, do you want to introduce our next reader? And then um, we're kind of, they're going to introduce one another. And <laughs> something like that. Not for sure. Hi, well, these two are going to sort of introduce each other, so I'm going to keep it brief. But because uh, they always have their own thing going. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just so delighted to have Emily and Rob not only here but here together. Um, I met Emily through Rob, and um, and she's snorting because that's just automatically funny. <laughs> But um, I mean, both of their work has just been incredibly influential to me, and, and there's two of my favorite writers. I've been wanting to do a book with Rob since like seriously the late '90s when we were both apparently like 13. So um, and we finally we finally have one out. It's on the table, The Cost of Living. And um, Emily's book I was privileged to read when it was in manuscript form and was just um, coming out on her blog and. And um, it's now been everywhere, the Today Show, and, and um, it's, it's just been a sensation. So I've just been so proud of both of them and so thrilled to have their books out the same season and to have them both in Chicago. So um, Emily is going to go first. Are we going to do that? Living in 
the midst of the knowledge of Roman's inevitable death forced me into a new kind of living. It was uncomfortable, a heavy and daily mental weight through some pretty difficult thoughts. But it was qualitatively different from the life I was living before. Like a dream life, an alternative existence. It was a life of heightened presence and constant mourning, an activity of which I became a scientist. Each day I picked apart my grief with a little knife. I combed through it, I boiled it in petri dishes, and tried to blow it up. I sprinkled it with gas and lit a match, watched it burn, put out the fire. It always came back tenacious and colorful, jumping around and shouting. Each day it presented a new substance to tinker with, sticky, soft, gooey, slimy, rough. Each day it baffled. Sometimes it smiled and laughed. Managing grief was weirdly playful, the way science and art should be. Experimentation, turning down <laughs> new roads, taking the cue from what came before and asking always why and what if and what next. I didn't like the results of my carefully devised experiments, all of which were about ridding myself of grief and trying to simply be blazingly happy in the moments remaining with Ronan. The results of my labor were unsatisfactory. I gave myself a big fat F for grief science class, scrawled in red pen at the top of the paper. Grief is too much work. You'll never get the grade you think you deserve. That Easter, like all holidays, was the enemy. It involved calculations. When, if. I returned to my station, tossed my apron to the floor. What good is this? My fingers charred, my mind ticking. There must be something to do. There must be a solution. Even a brilliant scientist could not make magic. How many Easter beginnings added up to an ending? When I was growing up, my parents put together a fantastic Easter egg hunt. My mom must have been padding around in the garden before dawn in her slippers, when I could hear my dad taking a shower in the bathroom that shared a wall with my bedroom, getting ready for church. It would be light, but still early. We were supposed to have remained quiet and calm and contemplative between Good Friday and Easter morning, but this plan was usually interrupted by the excitement that an episode of Night Rider created in my brother Andy and me on Friday night after the moody service, all dusty purple robes and shaded crosses, and my dad's voice speaking the gospel story off stage, out of sight and usually melodramatically, a disembodied voice waving and swelling over the solemn crowd. After a fragrant Sunday service with lilies stacked bloom to bloom on the altar in their pink and green and blue foil pots and everyone in shining clothes and smiles, and everyone rising from the dead, my brother and I were sent out into the yard at home to search for both the traditional diet eggs as well as plastic eggs full of clues that would tell part of a story that led to the next plastic egg, the next written clue, another tiny scroll of paper, and finally we reached the treasure, a basket full of chocolate and presents covered in ribbons and bows in pink and blue and yellow. Sometimes the baskets would be inside the dryer, the attic, a bathtub, the garage sink. Sometimes the clues made a rhyming poem, a limerick, or just a silly little story. Each day offered a new clue to Ronan's unraveling, which went hand in hand with his growth. He lost his vision as his hair grew longer, a ducktail in the back and enough mop on the top to make a mohawk with baby oil. He grew teeth that he didn't use, except to make him look slightly wolfish when he opened his mouth to eat mushy food. 
I looked at him carefully, wondering what changes I was missing. If I hovered over his crib and never closed my eyes, would I see his legs and fingers growing longer? What moments would I witness? Would the growth make a sound? He couldn't move or crawl, but sometimes in the morning he'd be on the other side of the crib. How long did it take him to move that small amount and at what cost? What progressions, which in this case were actually regressions, could I track? Would I know when swallowing hurt him? How would I know? I looked and looked like a mad scientist who, who hopes never to find what she is searching for. But looking is not the same as finding, which in turn is not the same as knowing. It's a question of epistemology. It's a question of what and how we know. I once watched, watched a snail move slowly across a road. I was having a manic stage, but that's not in here. <laughs> the figure's hip-sized face was shaped like a bull, two delicate horns like wet candy. The body was the color of the bright moon beginning to appear behind me in the summer sky. A little snail with a little slimy moon head kicking its way across the road with little pin ears in the dark and in the silence. How did it know the road would be empty? What did it hear? If it was a matter of life and death, a car or a hungry dog approaching, could a snail sprint? How far could it see? What was the horizon for a snail? If Ronan's brain couldn't flip the image, did that mean he saw everything upside down? We know that all of our sensory experiences cry out for interpretation. It's how we are in the world and how we understand who we are, our role, our place. It's what makes us human, what makes us the animals that we are. This feeling equals that reality. When I was seven months pregnant and in Baltimore to give a speech at a friend's school, I saw a jellyfish exhibit at the aquarium. The precise and patient hitch and pull of these fibrous filament-like simple drifters as they slide to the top of their tanks seemed as mysterious to me as the static hum of the many ultrasounds I'd had up to that point. Each week I was pregnant, I watched and listened to Ronnie's heartbeat glowing and insistent and pulsing at what looked like a pool of spilled, vibrating ink. There was something primal about the kicking in my stomach and the jellyfish moving. What fascinated and repelled me about ultrasounds was the feeling of being turned inside out for examination and the shock I felt each time that heart beat its steady pulse into the quiet exam room, even though I knew it was going, going, all the time. I always wondered, what if it stops? But I never expected to be alive the moment that it did. What I wanted to say as I peered into Rona's crib was wait, not yet. What I also wanted to say was go, go now before the suffering gets worse. I kept remembering the jellyfish in the way they offered the terrifying glimpse into the inner workings of what they are. Things made completely visible and the most mysterious of all. Creatures living with their insides on their outsides. I started to understand that grieving parents are like jellyfish. It's a suspension of belief to get up in the morning, applauding creaturely insistence at the cliché one foot in front of the other methodology of surviving a journey. Each day I felt compelled forward and onward, often against my will. What's unsettling about jellyfish is that we see all the secrets of their bodies, and they don't care. We see right through them. We see their scaffolding, the details of their construction, and it does not matter to them, only to us, the lookers, the voyeurs, the witnesses. I imagine the jellyfish spontaneously swarming to the top of their tank, without consciousness, without attachment or knowledge. I rolled to the grocery store with my floppy, beautiful boy, and sometimes I wouldn't have had it any other way. 
because to wish otherwise would be to wish for another baby, which I did not. On other days, I railed against this fact and wished I could pull a jellyfish from a tank and flush out its mysteries, give it a spine and feet, all the necessary bones, shout at it, make it walk on land, speak, explain, do the impossible. Ronan loved the dark blue wrapping paper in his Easter baskets more than the gifts they accompanied. Taking advantage of his best sense, his hearing, the paper was noisy and bright and bumpy, and although the crackles sometimes made him startle, as all noises did, he kept going for it, turning his head to have a look from the corner of his eye where his vision was still okay. I tried in these moments as he reached out to take a mental picture. Eventually, he would no longer move. Did I have to lose my memory of it as well? In these moments, and when I lingered at the edge of the crib watching him breathe, I felt bottomless with sadness each breath to fall into a trap door. And I also felt absolutely euphorically alive. Thank you. Now there'll be a comedic interlude. Well, some of you might get pissed off, but we're not gonna worry about it. Well, that's always good. So uh, we were just talking about what can go terribly wrong in readings. <laughs> this is it. So we thought we'd do it. Okay, you this, go first. This could have happened tonight. Good Lord, I'm getting old. <laughs> A former Fulbright scholar and graduate of Harvard Divinity School, Emily Rapp is the author of Poster Child, a memoir. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, <laughs> Salon, and Slate, among other publications. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Rob Roberge's previous books include The Story Collection, Working Backwards from the Worst Moment of My Life, and the novels More Than They Could Chew and Drive. <laughs> That's one sentence. That's good. No, that's no, you want more. Oh, oh yeah. Yours was a long one. I know. I didn't like that. She is the recipient <laughs> of a Rona Jaffe Writers Award and a James A. Michener Fellowship at the University of Texas, Austin, and the Philip Roth Residence and Creative Writing Fellowship at Bucknell University. <laughs> An award-winning professor and frequent guest writer. Roberge is currently a core faculty member at UCR Palm Desert's MFA program. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>
he hates you. Well, if he does that, he really deserves to be insulted. <laughs> um, was Utah the uh, first school in all African Americans starting five to win the title? That's right. Wow. That's a very cool thing. I was, I was seven. No, I wasn't saying you're coaching. No, you're far too young. Being nasty, racist, they all throw up. That's a great thing. Um, so uh, I'm going to read a sad part of the funny part. And I'm really hoping you can tell them apart. My, fa my father is dying. It's a funny part. I'm six months clean and I'm worried about a trip home, a trip full of triggers, Ray said on the phone. And he told me I should be hyper aware of the triggers and make as many meetings as I can. And I can call him no matter what time or day and night it is if I feel like I'm in trouble. Ray's advice is solid enough. He talked me down last night. But if I'm in trouble, I'll probably call someone I really know. Johnny Moe, who has almost the same amount of clean time as me, and had the same bottom, more or less, as I did. I don't have to explain anything to him. I might call Olivia. She and Johnny Moe know a lot about losing fathers and about missing lost chances. I haven't been clean long enough to deal with, with too much. This happened the last time, too. Without drugs, it feels impossible to even know who you are. You never really know the person walking around in your clothes, the one who has to deal with everything. Even six months after cleaning up, I can barely walk into a grocery store and function without a panic attack. A crowded sidewalk makes me want to run away. People's voices sound like a hundred jackhammers. Pigeons take off so loudly and beat their wings that it feels like it does damage. Everything's frightening, everything hurts behind my eyes, and I haven't slept more than two or three hours a night since I got clean. It's getting a little better now, but I still have nerves and trouble at the airport and on the flight, and all the way in the cab to the hotel across from the hospital. I still blame my father, fairly or not, for my mother's suicide. I still blame myself, too, though I know rationally that you can't change the way someone feels. But hearts don't know anything about rational. Hearts long, and they ache, and they dream, and they desire, and need. If love and wishes and hope could save someone, my life would be unrecognizable to me. But then so would everybody else's. But I still wonder and figure I always will whether my mother would have killed herself if she had never married my father and never had me. Life can go in infinite directions. How many times in her life did she turn right when left would have offered hope and beauty? How many men or women, for all I know, might have offered her a safety and love she'd instead never known? How many times did she know that her life was wrong and yet not leave that life for one that could not have been better? And how many of those times did she have those thoughts when I cried or needed or pestered and added to the things that chipped away at whatever keeps a person wanting to stay alive? How much despair did she allow to become normal before it no longer seemed like despair? It just felt like every day, every sunrise feeling hope, one after the last behind her, and the next day and the next day and the next looking the same forever. It could be a fact, even if I'm not to blame, she might have been better off if I had never been born. Among all the cliches you hear in AA and NA rooms is that feelings are not facts. Which is true enough, but facts didn't make my mother jump off that bridge. Feelings did. Feelings lead to actions, and actions become facts. So no, her feelings were not facts. But the fact is, my mother killed herself, and the fact is, I never really got over it. Now, here we the sad part.
Um, this is a scene uh, earlier, actually, the, the non-chronological. Well, you don't need to know that, but it's earlier in the book, so you may have been surprised. Why that's earlier in the book? I'm very confused. Um, while he's still getting high with the guy that he mentions uh, in the last uh, chapter there, Johnny Mo. And uh, Johnny Mo had an idea to, to make some money out in uh, Warner Valley, which is outside of 29 Palms in California. And uh, the plan doesn't work. And now they're in his father's uh, double-wide trailer, uh, drinking late at night, trying to couple, come up with enough money to get some morphine. They're both about to get dope sick. Um, and Wonder Valley is kind of interesting in that uh, after you pass the next service's 100 mile sign, it is the least traveled road in California, which in California makes it new. about it. Mm -hmm. A very good friend here I know, he's flying. Um, since 1961, every jet engine has been uh, tested in this country. You know the biggest thing to take down planes is? Birds. Birds. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. You've won a book, except you're sick of reading it. Um, but the way that they test jet engines is they have a pneumatic cannon, okay, that shoots chicken carcasses into every jet engine that gets mounted on a plane. Is that not fucking cool or what? <laughs> Who wants to shoot off a pneumatic chicken carcass gun into a jet engine? Uh, come on! Everybody wants that job. Now, at least. So you're very safe to fly. Your, your, your engines have been tested. Unless there's a bird bigger than your average chicken carcass. <laughs> Going faster than 300 combined miles an hour. All right, I have a book for you. <laughs> Around 2 a.m. I was drunk and trying to figure a way to get another of Johnny Moe's Oxycontins. An ad came on late night TV advertising gold for money. That's it, Johnny Moe said. You have some gold you've been holding out on? I know where to get some. He took a drink of his beer. Said, dude, this could be a little ugly, but we'd get some gold. We could pawn it for some morphine. How ugly? You read about those guys last year who tried to rob Lincoln's grave? I hadn't heard much of anything in the last year I'd been high. You want to rob Lincoln's grave, I said? No, dude, fuck Lincoln. My grandmother was buried with a shitty load of jewelry on a couple miles away from here. <laughs> buried, I said. Are you fucking crazy? She's my family, he said. If it doesn't bother me, why should it bother you? I lowered my voice, not wanting Al to hear me. You want to rob a grave? My grandmother's grave, he said. Not some stranger's. Listen to yourself, I said. Dude, she's been dead since I was a kid. She's probably just a skeleton by now. I said, they have all sorts of chemicals to stop a body from decomposing naturally. So we'll buy some KY or something and slide the rings off if she's still like a person or something. With fingers and skin and shit, he said. I looked over at Al, who's his father, who was a snoring wheeze next to us. Johnny Moe said, she's in this little plot out in the desert. No one would see us. We could get in and get out with gold. We could get money to pawn. I really don't see the problem. You don't, I said. You don't see a problem here. He shook his head, looking a little tired. I hear you. It's an extreme move. But it's money, and I don't know how, how the hell else we're going to get any. I looked at him hard and thought about it. 
she was dead. Who would we be hurting exactly? I said, give me two of your Oxycontin and I'll go with you. Dude, I only have a few left. We get this money, we'll have plenty for both of us. So give me two now, I said. You're just out of rehab, you don't need much. 160 milligrams isn't much, I said. You want me to go with you, that's my price. You have to do more than go with me. You have to help if you take a nap. I'll dig, I said. In the casket, you're on your own. For two oxys, you're digging a fucking lot, I said. And he handed me two blue pills. Maybe all the fucking digging. It didn't look like anybody had been buried here in a while. The kind of place you might visit in an old town that showed off graves and one-room schoolhouses like they deserve to be called attractions. Like going to see Lizzie Borden's grave or something. In my hometown, they used to take us on school trips to the town witch Hannah Cranna's grave. She was famous, best as I could remember, for cursing some woman's pie-making ability. You could look her up. A pretty, a pretty lame witch. Later, some great Connecticut band we played with had named herself after her. The clouds had parted and the light from the moon made the desert look luminous. There was light but little color, like a black and white movie. The fence around the graveyard was old and broken in several places. Johnny Moe carried a spade shovel and a flashlight that was dimmed by low batteries. I had the other shovel. We'd gotten both, both from his father's garage. Mine was a square-edged one and we followed his weak beam of light and I listened to our boots crunch softly in the dirt. We grabbed work gloves and I put mine on, getting ready to dig when we found what we were looking for. And he stopped. This is easier than day, he said. We are not robbing a grave in daylight, I said. I didn't say we were doing it in the day. I said it's easier to find in the day. You better find the right one, I said. Don't worry, dude, they're marked. We won't disturb any strangers' graves. I didn't really care about that. His grandmother, after all, was as much a stranger to me as anyone else buried here. I just wanted to make sure the person we dug up was the one he was sure had gold on her when they put her down there. The sand and the snow shined in the moonlight. Wind rustled through the sagebrush and smoke trees on the perimeter of the graveyard. I followed Johnny Moe in his jerky, faint light as he paused and looked to the beaten grave markers. Some were chipped, a couple cracked from age and low-grade earthquakes that had peppered the desert over the years. We looked for what seemed like a long time, but probably wasn't. I was scared of being caught, so seconds lingered longer in a fear-stretched sense. He stopped again and looked down. This is it, he said. The pill was starting to work on me, and I already dreaded the fact that they wouldn't be working like this in a few days. Stay clean for a couple weeks, and you might get three or four days of good highs. After that, life was back to just trying not to be sick every day for the rest of your life. For now, though, I had the muted calm of not giving a shit about anything or anyone. My head was gracefully quiet for the first time in a long time, and I started digging a few feet to the left of the gravestone. Johnny Moe started on the right, and the ground wasn't too bad, not nearly as hard as I had feared. How much more can we get in, I said. He shoveled and shrugged. Depends on how much gold, what price we can get, a lot of variables. I dug deeper, my muscles ached with the labor, but it was labor with a payoff, and I felt the sweat on my body grow cold in the night air. Every once in a while, I paused to see if I could hear anything other than us disturbing the world at this hour. I looked at my watch, and it was 5 a.m. We had less than an hour until the sun started swelling from behind the mountains, out toward Amboy. People in the desert got up freakishly early. We need to get this done, I said. Really, Johnny Moe said? I thought we could linger. 
Take our time robbing a fucking grave. He stood straight up and looked at me. Stop stating the obvious. Do you think I'm stupid? I laughed. You're not stupid. You are a lot of things, but you are not stupid. What the fuck does that mean? I'm a lot of things. Dude, look at us. Okay, that was a uh, an awesome reading between Emily Rapp and Rob Roberge. A little bit more somber, like Livia said, but I think Rob really pulled it out with the whole um, chicken cannon thing. Um, yeah, thank God, because I got to tell you, Emily had me, uh, my eyes were all kind of watery during her reading, so I really needed the chicken cannon thing to kind of straighten me out a little bit. Yeah, Livia and I were kind of on opposite sides of the room, but I'm, <laughs> there were certain parts of when Emily was reading, which, I mean, awesome reading, very, very powerful and impactful but like i look over at livius and he's just got this look like what's happening yeah yeah i'm telling you i was about to be a weepy a weepy podcaster there so <laughs> um, great stuff from both those guys great stuff from all four of the readers yeah it was a great event one more thank you to the fine ladies at sunday salon chicago you're going to want to check out their website sundaysalon.com and uh, Rob, I think, is going to make that accessible to everybody via internet magic or whatever he does. That's right. Like Harry Potter. Like Harry Potter. Is this a shot at me because I said I would never read? What's her name? <laughs> J.K. Rowling. J.K. Yeah. Rowling. Yep. I did mean Harry Potter. We did read J.K. Rowling. <laughs> and no matter how hard I try to block it from my memory. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yep, that happened. It did happen. So uh, a great time. Uh, it was really nice to uh, yeah, I could spend a little bit of time with Rob Roberts. We met him briefly when we were in um, when we were in Boston, but uh, every bit as cool as he was on this show. So definitely, if you haven't yet, go get yourself a copy of The Cost of Living. And uh, that's it. Now, it's after three times, we have to ban him from the show. Isn't that how it works? Yeah, we don't get to talk to him for at least another year or so. Yeah. Um, but if you want to see how awesome it is to spend time with authors and to really how awesome it is for authors to spend time with us, um, we got some photos with people and of the event and everything. So there's going to be, um, you probably already saw some from episode 150, episode 150, um, but you'll also see some on this post as well. Hey, so you know what you can do? So you can go get those photos, write little stories about them if you're fans of the show and apparently Amazon, um, what we'll sell those for you. Yeah. <laughs> Who sent me? I think it was uh Pelavia sent me the link to it. Uh, she, she sent me the information about this in a, in a message or something. And my reply was just two words. Fuck me. 
Well, you know, you got to think the guys at Amazon. So, so here's basically what it is. Amazon is going to have a, an, an imprint or something. I'm not even going to read the article because I, I don't want, ever want to read any fan fiction. But um, basically, it's going to completely legitimize fan fiction by making it um, available for you to purchase through, through Amazon. So instead of what we got, which was the, the wonderful Fifty Shades of Grey, we just would have gotten the, what was it, like Ice Princess, Snow Queen? Snow Queen's Prince. Ice Dragon. Yeah, whatever. We, if this was around <laughs> then, instead of Fifty Shades of Grey, we would have just gotten that, where it was Edward and Bella in weird S&M sex, whatever, I don't know. We just would have gotten straight up fan fiction instead. Yeah. I. That's the, I mean, you know that's that's what happened they were like wait a minute we made so much money on 50 shades of gray what if we just put all that fan fiction right in people's faces here's a really weird thing about it i don't know a lot about fan fiction i know that there are huge communities of, of fan fiction you know people but i think part of it is they i mean they share their work with one another for free and, and i think that's part of just the the community thing do you, do you know what i mean i just don't know that yeah i mean obvi- the concept obvi- I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay. Obviously, if there's a buck to be made, somebody's going to do it. Maybe even someone who doesn't currently write fan fiction who thinks they can, if they can score, you know, the two ninety nine for an ebook or whatever, will start writing it. But I think that community, I don't necessarily know that they're really going to participate. Yeah, and really, if you think about it, the whole idea behind fan fiction is you've got people that are so in love with whatever it is that they're writing fan fiction about, you know, like, um, could be Glee or, you know, yeah. whatever pop culture, TV show, movie, whatever it is that, you know, they want to see, they're invested in the characters and they know a lot about them and stuff. So they, they have people who write these stories and they're almost like, these are things that you'd never see happen in the actual shows. Um, but it's like, it's total, like just brain candy for these people who love the characters and stuff that they have another way to see these characters interact with each other. I will tell you, I will not be putting up the six or seven books that I have in progress um, for the show, The OC. I will not be putting those up on Amazon. Those are just for me to enjoy. Just for you or just for you and the OC fans? No, it's just for me. Oh. I write them just for myself. So, I, I'm trying to think of what I would write fan fiction for if I did. I don't know. I can't think of something. That's um, weird. I, can I offer some suggestions? Yes. Um, you would probably write them for um, uh, the, that um, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah. Um, you would probably write them for Arrested Development. Sure, yeah. Um, the What's the what's that Zoe Deschanel show? Oh, the New Girl. I would totally write New Girl fan fiction. Yeah, yeah. porn fan fiction. <laughs> it's all Jess and a character that's not on the show named Rob. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah, I write myself into every scene. Every scene. <laughs> So. Every scene in the OC. Every uh, scene in the OC. Yep. This, may, this all right. So this made me think of something too that we were talking about off the air. Um, so there's this whole fanfic thing, which I worry that it's going to be a failure, but then I worry a little more that it's actually going to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing good can come of this one way or the other. But what's going to happen to? We just talked to Brian Evanson recently. What's going to happen to like legitimate ap- adaptation books? Like uh, he was doing the Alien book and the Dead Space book and. The thing that I'm excited about, probably way too excited about, is we just found out that Krista Faust wrote a Fringe uh, adaptation kind of book. Um, what's what's going to happen to that, you know, that genre of books that's already out there? I think that the difference is going to be that um, when it's 
endorsed by the official source, typically it's canon. Yeah, that's a good point. And fanfic really just like takes whatever liberties they want to. Yeah, exactly. And that's and there's going to see there's going to be that backlash too. So Krista Faust writes a a canon piece of the Fringe series. I'm assuming it's canon. Uh, you know, whoever like, you know, Livius Olson <laughs> writes <laughs> writes some fanfic. You know, I mean the backlash from Fringe fans I think will be heavy on the fanfic, especially if someone else is doing, you know, canon stuff. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, in my mind, I was like, oh man, if it makes this legit stuff go away, you know, not a good thing. Yeah. Because, like, especially um, if you have, like, the talent, like, what Brian Evanson did for Rob Zombie's story, Lords of Salem, mm-hmm. I wish that would happen for just, like, every, you know, everything I loved, like, even New Girl. <laughs> if Brian Evanson wrote a New Girl novel. <laughs> Damn it! I couldn't say it with a straight face. But you, you get what I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> um, I've I've read stuff um, here and there, you know, hit or miss. Um, not that long ago, I read the uh, the Luther novel based on the BBC series. I thought it was great. I thought they really captured the spirit of the show and the character. And I, honestly, I don't remember who the writer was, um, but I thought it was really good. And I there's I tried reading some 24, you know, novel series. Couldn't get into them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, yeah, I've, I've read some stuff throughout my life and yeah I was pretty much hit or miss on if it was any good or not yeah well we'll see we'll just try and find the good stuff and if we do we'll share it with our audience that we love so much we read um Raylan we did that's a good example Raylan which was, was like fan fiction for the TV show by the guy who actually created the character in the short story that the show is based off of yeah that's just twisted it is twisted it's like he's his own like literary grandfather or something I had to bring incest into it. I had yeah. to accuse Elmore Leonard of being incestuous. Oh god. <laughs> the right. bar, the bar is just like I'm digging a ditch to like bury the bar in. That's how low it is. Hey, do you know what we're doing next episode? Uh I do. And let me look at our notes to remember. <laughs> no. Uh <laughs> yeah, next episode. I'm very excited about this. And um I talked about it enough, so why don't you talk about it? I can talk about it knowledgeably. Wait, um, how far are you into this book? Oh, don't start with me. I haven't started it yet. I'm I'm exactly one chapter into the book because that's what he read. I am. Uh, I'm about two hundred pages into Dan O'Shea's Penance, um, a crime, you know, cop thriller uh, based um, almost entirely in Chicago. A, a good portion of it's based in Chicago, which is very very cool. Yeah. Um, anybody who's listened to re- recent episodes knows that I went and saw Dan do a, a live reading at the Lake Forest uh, bookstore in Lake Forest, Illinois. And uh, that's based on his reading alone. I, I insisted that we review it on the podcast. And uh, rightfully so. So I am very much enjoying it. There's a little bit of a spoiler for next episode. Rob will be enjoying it probably about six hours before we record. <laughs> Under the wire. That's yep. what I do. Well, I did this thing, like, uh, and I, no one's going to care about this, but, like, since we started the podcast, I've conditioned myself to be, like, an endurance reader. So I could just go eight hours at a time and just knock out a whole book. So if I get started reading, it's tough for me to stop. So I just kind of, like, bank it all away till I need to read it. It's funny you say that because I was talking to somebody recently um, at work, and I said, something about going on lunch and reading this week's book. And the guy goes, wait a minute, you read a book a week? And I was like, 
yeah, on some weeks, on other weeks, I try to read two. And the guy was just blown away. Now, if I told him that you just sit for eight hours and read one book, it would be like a whole nother <laughs> level of like mind blowing for this guy. Like I take seven days, you take like seven hours, but they're all together. Yep. You know? so. Yeah. But then you talk to some of the people that we know and uh, the amount of reading we do is just nothing compared to some of the other people we know. That's true. But do they have a book review podcast? No, they yeah, do not. See? So, meh, you know, you know, what's really crazy. Hmm. Remember when we used to do interlude episodes because we needed a break from reading? <laughs> yeah, I think that no, that Nate, the word sounds familiar. So the last time we took a week off was it? Uh, it was in the end of April. It was we did our crossover with This Is Horror. Um, but I think the next time it's going to be like ten or twelve in a row before we take another week off, barring unforeseen circumstance. Yeah, right now I think really like the interlude has just been relegated to this to this level where it's like we have too much on our plate to be able to review a book, so we have to build one in just to like give us our buffer. Like if we have a, a trip coming up or something like that. That's true. But uh, we've got some great stuff coming up. Should I, tell, should I tell the folks some of the things they should expect? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're going to be reviewing, um, we mentioned Dan O'Shea's book. That Ghoul Ava by Todd Brown is coming up shortly. Um, a book called Shining Girls, which was recommended to us by Chuck Wendig. Uh, and I saw an article about in uh, the on the website io9 that said The Shining Girls is the best serial killer story ever told so i'm so excited well you know why i'm not excited about that right i'm very excited about reading it but you know what it is right it's, it's a uh book. yeah they sent us a print copy yeah so uh and then uh, another one that we're kind of trying to get so i'm not gonna mention that one but um, we're probably gonna review neil gaiman's most recent release and that'll be coming up in uh towards the end of june and as we discussed earlier there's a good chance we might be reading krista foss's fringe adaptation Mm-hmm. It's on adaptation. It's just I don't even know what you would call it. Tie-in. It's a tie-in. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah. Tie-in's probably the best. Yeah. And there's other ones that like we haven't confirmed. Mm-hmm. Like Livius. Oh yeah, there's at least two other ones that um, hopefully we'll have confirmation of by the end of next week. This week. Yeah. Yep. We're reaching out to publishers all over the place. And there's stuff into July and August too, but it's a. Uh, podcast life man it's raining it's raining books yeah it ain't yeah. easy being this kind of thug i know right booking ain't easy <laughs> but it's necessary oh god <laughs> oh why don't you sign us off apologies to the uh sunday salon women who had to have our weirdness tacked onto the end of their their wonderful reading <laughs> oh god please just sign us off all right <laughs> That's going to do it for our two-part Sunday Salon Chicago uh, live reading series. Uh, until next time when we're talking about Dan O'Shea, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Sned. Keep reading. Keep reading.